0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 21st of November, 2023 on Monocle Radio.
1: Israel apparently on the verge of ceasing fire, but for how long? Could the recent China-Australia rapprochement unravel over a weird incident off the coast of Japan? And can the UK's Prime Minister revive his fortunes by cutting a tax almost nobody pays? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Andrew Thompson will discuss today's big stories and we'll have the latest from Belfast about a legal challenge to the UK government's latest effort to draw a line under the troubles. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Latika Burke, journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and by Andrew Thompson, Latin America specialist and regular contributor to the news site Latin News. Hello to you both. Hello.
0: Good Uh, evening.
1: Andrew, you're outnumbered by Australians. Latika, you're outnumbered by Andrews. I don't know know who is at the greatest disadvantage here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Latika, you have recently been visiting our homeland. You went to our nation's capital.
0: Yes, I went native for six nights. Slept three hours each night. And there's
1: not that much to do in Canberra.
0: No, I think there's not a lot to do in Canberra at all. Um, most of that awake hours was spent looking at my phone, wishing I could go my, go to sleep, Andrew. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, a very different environment, I must say. The last time I was in Australia was for the federal election a year prior, and the mood in Canberra is somewhat different, and I would not say in the government's favour. Uh,
1: how would you quantify that difference? Why is it just the standard issue? Issue. These people have been in power for like a year now. We're bored with them, or is it, is it more than that?
0: I just think there's a lot of... Uh, actually, I think it is partly the result of governments, and there's a good lesson for the UK here, Andrew, that go to elections with such a small strategy, uh, they're unidentifiable under a microscope, <laughs> and then that government finds themselves in power with not a lot to do, And also not a lot of mandate, and it really does lead to a difficult scenario where people start saying, well, what's the point of you?
1: Uh, Andrew, you are about to go to somewhere, not Canberra. That's right. I'm about to go to Uruguay. The the option of Canberra's right there. (laughs) (coughs) Uruguay
2: is a small country sandwiched between Argentina and Brazil, and... um, not a lot of people know this, but it regularly comes across in various studies as one of the more democratic countries in Latin
1: America. Long may that continue. I mean, some might argue that that is, or has been in historical terms, a reasonably low bar to climb over. But but what actually is its secret?
2: Um, I think a degree of um, gradualism, um, cross-party talks, um, some disasters in the past. It had a... When I was a teenager, there was a very um, violent uh, urban guerrilla movement um, tackling the government. And it did find a way of overcoming that and kind of negotiating a new political agreement. Um, and strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, but if you look at the Economist Intelligence Unit ranking of countries by level of democracy, Uruguay comes out as more democratic than the United States, mm. <laughs> which is perhaps not so.
1: Again, but... currently one might argue a low bar. Uh, but we will start uh, tonight's show in Israel, where the war cabinet of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is reportedly contemplating a potential deal which would free at least some of the hostages seized by Hamas and or Islamic Jihad on October 7th, and still held in Gaza. Under the terms of the Qatar brokered deal, 50 Israelis would be released during a four-day ceasefire, along with a number of Thai citizens. In return, Israel Israel will release between 150 and 300 Palestinian prisoners and allow fuel, food and other vital supplies into Gaza. Further ceasefires and prisoner swaps are also on the table. Um, Latika, first of all, Israel insisting, as it would, that it would resume operations at the end of any such ceasefire. But that notwithstanding, does this sound like it might be the beginning of the end?
0: Yes, I do think so, and I think this is what the United States has been really working towards, um, particularly, obviously, in in close negotiation with Qatar. And I must say, I was talking to somebody who's been working very closely on this, and they did remark to me that they had thought that by this time we would be in a regional war by now. And so there is behind the scenes, uh, I think, a slight relief Of course, this is not the case if you're in Gaza currently being bombed, but there is a relief that this has not tipped over into the regional war, which you might remember on October 7, this was a real live threat and a danger that we could potentially have war raging on the continent and war raging in the Middle East. And of course, one would be much harder to put back in its bottle than the other. So I think if we do get to the stage where we have a significant hostage transfer deal, Uh, That is a credit, really, to a lot of um, governments working very hard, not least, of course, the Biden administration. Um, Andrew, a
1: related question. If fire is ceased, as it were, it would be quite difficult for Israel to start up again, absent further provocations from Hamas, especially if, as as Latika, I think, quite rightly suggests, there has been an amount of American strong-arming going on behind the scenes.
2: I'm a, a little bit less optimistic than Latika, I'm afraid. I mean a um an exchange of prisoners and uh, partial um not ceasefire but you know humanitarian corridors has to be welcomed. Hmm. The question that worries me is what's the bigger picture and how do we go beyond four or five days of cessation of hostilities to some bigger steps that follow after that. And I think um, over at least the last 50 years um, that part of the world has shown how small uh, temporary agreements that do not tackle the root of the problem ultimately are unsuccessful so perhaps this is a bit unfair but i'm thinking what's the long-term game plan uh what is the future of gaza or or the west bank and at what point does it become realistic to expect more substantive negotiations to begin.
1: Uh, Latika, we did spend an entire episode of the Foreign Desk this past weekend trying to figure that one out with, I'll admit, limited success, but I still think it's worth listening to. Um, Is it yet clear to you or indeed anyone else, possibly including Benjamin Netanyahu, what Israel's preferred endgame is?
0: I think the removal of Netanyahu is key to this. I mean... And that is really the conversation I think people are starting to have, which, again, is another significant step in any sort of progress. I mean, the idea that we might solve the Middle East is, I mean, it would seem insurmountable to most people. There's a reason why this has not been solvable until now. Do we think Netanyahu has made solving this much, much harder than it might have been? Absolutely. I think that that is a unanimous view in the United States. It's a unanimous view across the region. And it's certainly obviously a unanimous view inside uh, what remains of Palestinian leadership here. So I I, I don't think that we need to be as negative as before because I think what has changed is a very open and honest discussion that actually the status quo can no longer survive. And you saw that on display in the weekend at the Manama Dialogues um, in Bahrain, hosted by the uh, I- 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 S, And I thought there were some very frank conversations actually happening that involved the region. It wasn't just the United States. It wasn't just Israel. And I actually thought, for the first time, we're having cracking this this wide open as to what the future could look like here. And there were some hard words as well for Hamas. It wasn't entirely a region completely against Israel, which I thought was also uh, comforting. But I think the removal of Netanyahu eventually is is the next big step here. Well, Andrew, a
1: possible shift in the status quo um, is that. And and I think this is broadly encouraging that the, the proper weirdos in Netanyahu's coalition, by which I mean people like uh, Itmar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister of the Jewish Power Party, uh, Bezikhek Smotrich of the Religious Zionist Party, the finance minister, um, who are in his coalition, but he has quite pointedly frozen them out of the war cabinet. Um, they are against uh, this deal, unsurprisingly. Um, it. Remains to be seen whether either of them will resign on a point of such high principle. I rather doubt it. But is it possible for Netanyahu to continue to govern Israel while freezing these people out? And is it actually possible that that's kind of appealing to him?
2: You could, I suppose, I should hasten to say I know little of uh, Israeli politics, but you could have Netanyahu making an alternative set of uh, temporary alliances um, to allow him to govern without, um, without the more extreme nationalistic right. Um, I also get the impression um, that a large proportion of public opinion um, is dead, dead, dead set against Netanyahu continuing um so i so from my uh perspective um his time in office is likely to be to be limited um as we come out however we come out of uh, the current fighting.
1: Well we shall of course be following this story across all our shows in coming days uh, as details of that deal become clearer uh, but now to a contretemps between Australia and China and just when they seem to be getting on so well Australia has accused China's Navy of injuring several Royal Australian Navy divers by directing sonar pulses at them. The incident occurred off Japan earlier this week the Australian divers were apparently engaged in nothing more belligerent than disentangling fishing nets from the propellers of the frigate HMAS Toowoomba. Australia's Defence Minister Richard Miles has described the Chinese actions as unsafe and unprofessional. China has described this characterisation as rude and irresponsible. Um, Latika, Australians being rude and irresponsible. Who ever heard um, of such a thing? But does this threaten the progress which appeared to be made when Anthony Albanese visited Beijing recently?
0: Yes, this is by far the most serious test of the, the new Labour government's position on China and it came into office promising to stabilize the relationship, not reset, stabilize, which is a really crucial distinction. And it's pretty much done so. It has secured uh, significant concessions from the Chinese in unblocking some, not all, but some of those huge tariffs that were imposed. Uh, when the former Prime Minister asked for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. And that was the absolute nadir of Australia-China relations. That's when the Chinese stopped answering any phone call from Australian officials, diplomats or uh, the Prime Minister himself. So rude, you might say the Chinese have a little form here. (laughs) Um, So fast forward a couple of years, and you could absolutely say that the public did want things to calm down. They didn't want to have an extremely tense, fraught relationship between China, which is Australia's largest trading partner by miles, and has been since 2007. The economy's prosperity depends on it, and people know it. And... Then you have this incident. Now, just last week... Anthony Albanese was on his first visit to Beijing as the Prime Minister he went there uh, not really to gain anything he actually went there to mark 50 years since his idol Gough Whitlam, mm-hmm. a former Labour Prime Minister had visited uh, Beijing and there he and Penny Wong who's a left-wing foreign minister went and reenacted actually the pickups that Gough Whitlam uh, staged 50 years prior and they were black and white photos and Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong are standing standing there uh, reenacting these pictures in in colour this time and putting it on their social media. That went down like a lead balloon. Uh, (laughs) The Chinese praised him as handsome boy by the end of the trip and really uh, Anthony Albanese did not come away with any new concessions from the Chinese and that trip really did look like the balance had tilted in China's favour. So there was a little upset about this, a little bit of uneasiness Then we have this incident where the Chinese are behaving in a very threatening, malicious way towards uh, Australian uh, RAN divers. And, Andrew Crucial, unprovoked. This was an unwarranted, unprovoked demonstration of their bullying and harassment in waters that were not even theirs. This happened inside Japan's EEZ Mm -hmm. and in international waters. And... What is more astonishing at home is that Anthony Albanese would have known about this event. It happened on Tuesday. Days later, he is in in San Francisco meeting Xi Jinping. He's under a lot of pressure at home for for going to all these international summits uh, and doesn't raise it with the Chinese president. And this is actually the rub because the new Labor government has made a policy of saying, well, we want to cooperate with China where we can and disagree where we must, but here's a clear example of where they needed to disagree. And so far the only protest that Australia has registered has been through diplomatic channels and channels in Beijing, and a lot of the Australian public's going to look at that and say not good enough.
1: Well, indeed so, and Andrew, it's not like, <clears throat> Excuse me. China has no form for throwing its weight around in waters vaguely in its vicinity. It does this pretty frequently. But is there all that much anybody can really do to stop them? The, the days during which you know, European or other Western powers uh, could have sent gunboats up the Yangtze are, are long gone.
2: I suppose so. You can find other ways of resisting, I suppose, through diplomatic means. And ultimately, there is, I suppose, uh, a few U.S. aircraft carriers that um, could go around that part of the world. Um, I I know I'm supposed to answer questions, not make questions, (laughs) not put questions, but but a question in my mind anyway is, is this uh, a continuation of what at one stage was called wolf warrior diplomacy Mm. or a a change in uh, Chinese stance from, I think, Deng Xiaoping's time when it was sort of, let's keep low profile and and grow economically to the current uh, approach, which is much more aggressive and, to use that word, Uh, rude. And I just wonder if seen from Beijing's point of view, um, wolf warrior diplomacy pays off. Do they think it's actually giving them benefits? And, And if so, what are they gaining from it?
1: What we're not really clear on, Latika, is where on the continuum uh, the impetus for this action came from, from, you know, at one extreme, Xi Jinping picking up a phone on his desk the minute Albanese got on his plane and thought, right, let's have a bit of fun with these people, uh, or just a somewhat bored officer on the bridge of a People's Liberation Army Navy ship thinking, "Eh, let's give these guys a headache.
0: And that's why this is so worrying. I mean, we have only just seen now the resumption of military-to-military contact between the United States and China. And the big fear is not that either side wants to go guns blazing and launch an attack on each other. It's that things like this could happen, and without communication and without understanding the motivations or understanding why on earth your new best buddy, uh, who's (laughs) welcome back in the tent, is treating you like this – Without understanding these things and being able to communicate clearly, the risk of miscalculation is extreme and it is enormous and where China is involved... Uh, The outcomes of that could be catastrophic if they're not dealt with properly. And that is why there is so much uh, responsibility that people expect from China to conduct itself within uh, the rules of engagement on the seas. And that is why people expect China also to behave in a manner that is consistent with what it says. Once again, the Australian people have been shown that you cannot trust what China says. You can only judge China by its actions. And these actions are not the actions of a friend.
1: Latika Burke and Andrew Thompson thank you both for the moment we will have more from you shortly now in the 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed in Belfast Northern Ireland has found itself serving as something of a laboratory in which ideas about peace justice and reconciliation can be tested a case commencing at the High Court in Belfast today demonstrates the difficulties of pleasing everybody a challenge has been mounted against the UK government's new Northern Ireland troubles legacy and reconciliation Act. It effectively confers conditional amnesty to people accused of crimes connected to the troubles. However, some victims of those crimes and or their families are struggling to see this as justice. Ben Kelly, a Northern Irish journalist and editor at Newsweek, joins us to discuss the law and the case. Um, Ben, a challenge like this seems like it was always pretty inevitable, doesn't it?
3: it certainly was uh this is a very very unpopular move by the british government um it is opposed by people across the political spectrum in fact it's one of the rare things that has united all political parties in northern ireland and as you refer to their victims groups many of them and uh you know families of victims um are very much against this and they're backed by amnesty international as well who were who were there at the fore today in belfast so This was, you know, they were not going to go down without a fight. This was always going to be a challenge that the UK would have to face back
1: I mean, if everybody in Northern Ireland absolutely hates this thing, and as you correctly point out, it it has prompted an, well, in the general context, almost heartwarming display of, of, you know, bipartisan unity across uh, Northern Ireland's political spectrum. What was the UK government hoping to accomplish? Is this just part of that eternal, desperate wish of UK government's, of you know, time immemorial that they can just stop worrying and thinking about Northern Ireland?
3: Well, it certainly does speak to their lack of, uh, you know, appreciation for for the nuances of Northern Ireland that we often see on display from all shades of of UK governments in the past. But, you know, this gets to the crux of the issue. The UK government has said things like, we want to put this to bed, we want to close this out. Um, They'll also say things, you know, they don't want to see elderly British soldiers being trolled through the courts and so on. But, you know, also, you've got to remember the British state have been accused of all sorts of of collusion at varying levels across the decades of the conflict by many different actors involved. And there's a lot of things there that are murky, they're undiscovered, and perhaps they do not want the lid lifted on certain things that will be you know, embarrassing at best or or very worrying for the British state at worst. So there's a lot there that they sound accused of, that people will, you know, I'm just listening to some victims today pointing to things that were never really got to the bottom of. And that's all involved in in the continuing investigation of the troubles.
1: I mean, do you perceive a difference in public response to this than... What we saw 25 years ago when under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, a lot of paramilitary prisoners, some of whom had committed dreadful crimes, uh, were released early from prison. I know that wasn't uncontroversial at the time, but was that different perhaps because at least there had been a referendum on the GFA?
3: yeah you're right that they are very much the same kind of thing here and that was one of the most controversial elements of the good friday agreement many people um did not vote for it because of that particular um strand many voted for it and held their nose in that respect i think it speaks to the same the same beliefs people who believe in justice in law and order would just have been you know just as angry at the release of prisoners in 98 as they are about this now i think it speaks to the core that most people want to see justice um, whoever that brings before the courts.
1: I mean, if there is relative unanimity in Northern Ireland that this Act uh, is not the way to address outstanding questions of justice related to the Troubles, uh, is there any consensus around what else should be done? W- would a more popular move, at least in Northern Ireland, just be to let the law take its take its course uh, regardless of who it comes after?
3: Well, I think that's the only conceivable alternative, really, Um, you know, things as they were before, I suppose. Um, I can't think of any other way, really. Um, But as for where this goes next, obviously, you will have this challenge. I think people will be looking towards a future Labour government in the UK who have already said that they would have returned this. And I think more pressingly, we've seen today calls for the Irish government um, to perhaps take some sort of interstate action against the UK on this, which they have hinted that they will. So this does open up Um, sort of different strands that could be going forward. Um, It's hard to say where it goes from here.
1: Ben Kelly, thank you for joining us. Uh, Let's bring in our panel on this, Andrew and Latika. Um, Andrew, in your particular area of expertise, Latin America, similar processes as a result of broadly similar conflicts have been brought to bear. Is there any consensus over what has worked and what has not? Probably not. It's a very fertile and
2: interesting ground. And if I could just very quickly mention um, one of the major peace agreements in Colombia, which was um, reached in uh, 2016, it specifically had the introduction um, of a transitional justice system. And a lot of killers basically got off free. Um, But that was in the context that they were also being expected to lay down their arms, sign demobilization agreements and integrate into peaceful civilian politics. So you could see why, um, if you like, there were certain um, uh, filters applied to the way justice normally works um, because there was the possibility of peace which was judged to be the greater good. Um, to give another example, the long uh, military dictatorship in Argentina, uh, there were discussions of amnesty, but a full amnesty was not really given to the armed forces, and they were brought to trial, and all the top commanders uh, received very long um, sentences in a in a major trial in, in 1985. So you could say that Latin America has um, dealt with this issue of... Um, whether justice should be pursued uh, without any constraints or whether some court kind of special treatment um, is necessary to get the greater good of a a peaceful settlement.
1: Latika, it's understandable enough that things like this arouse great passions when it is very far from ancient history. The people who are taking this uh, to court in Northern Ireland are people who live through this. They are victims, they are families of victims. But Strangely, as the recent experience, uh, and indeed... Historical experience and the linkage of the two of them of our own country demonstrates there's still arguments over where and when you draw a line under history when people are discussing events which happened generations previously.
0: Right. I mean, we're still having debates about reparations Mm. and things like that, about how many people should be paying for crimes that were committed hundreds of years ago. In this case, though, I think um, it is contemporary. And I think that if you don't have the community consensus for amnesties, They can't be granted because look at what is happening. You are denying people justice and creating ground, I think, for further radicalisation, an environment where we know that polarisation is destroying democracies. Well,
1: let's go to the Netherlands, where tomorrow voters will go to the polls in a snap general election, which will attract more international attention than Dutch general elections generally do, a low bar, but nonetheless. The principal plot lines include an end to the era dominated by the incumbent Prime Minister Mark Rutte, who is standing down after 13 years, the likelihood of the Netherlands electing its first female Prime Minister, the prospects of a new centrist party headed by a long-serving MP, and a potential resurgence ...for the indefatigable nationalist siever Geert Wilders. First of all, here is some authentic Dutch argy-bargy. Voor, voor het, land beeld, ja, het land uit. Er ja, is. Ja, Gaan je even ver- verder?
3: Ja, ja. Het ja. leuke eraan is ja. ja. om hier een aparte uitzending. Ja. 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 een aparte Maar dit graag. Het leuke is wel aan dit... Volgens mij ga ik met jou samenwerken op deze
1: manier. ja, je
3: gaat
2: het nog zien hoor
1: well someone got told there i'm not quite sure who got told what by whom but they got told um andrew first of all let's let's look at the outgoing prime minister uh, mark Rutte, who has dominated dutch politics one way or another for 13 years um is there a rutteism is there is there a legacy uh i'm not sure to be uh, to be blunt
2: um this is often said of him <laughs> well yes uh when you um occupy a fairly sort of centrist position and you make lots of political deals, um, that's either um, something to be praised because you are uh, allowing a consensual way forward for domestic politics, or it's something that makes you a little bit of a grey man um, and not uh, not mem- not remembered for any particular policy more remembered for a period of wheeling dealing so so that's if you like a sort of a slightly down uh, <laughs> downward facing uh, assessment of his, of his role as prime minister uh, but but i you know
1: it's it's light and shade um latika one of the reasons that other european countries in particular will be taking a close interest in this is that ruta's most recent coalition collapsed in part uh in a row over migration migration will obviously be a huge huge issue in determining the outcome of this election um but is that, do you think, going to work for or against the woman being touted as the Netherlands' likely uh, next Prime Minister? This is Delaan Yeselgaus-Zigerios, uh, is herself a refugee.
0: It's difficult to say. I'm not a close observer of Dutch politics, I must say, Andrew. So I don't want to make any uh, predetermined judgments on this. But obviously, migration is something that is tearing Europe, uh, European politics apart. And you have seen all sorts of exotic deals being struck by European countries, member states and the European Commission itself in these bids to try and keep migration at bay. And I think it is really in the interests of centrist parties to address this issue head on because if they don't... Uh, we can see already in so many countries, including our own, how this issue runs to the far right, usually, um, and the extremes. And then it generates a lot of support for parties that really shouldn't have a, a huge stake in a coalition government that that um, European politics is so capable capable of organising. The other thing I would say, though, on, on Ruta is a point um, that may go, I think, unobserved. I would describe him as a friend of Australia's. I mean, Mm. Ruta was the prime minister when MH17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. And that plane uh, took off from Amsterdam. It did. So that brought Australia and the Netherlands very closely, uh, very close together in a way that that tragedy, otherwise without that tragedy, would would not have happened. And Ruta has taken security of the continent, I think, quite seriously. Now, I know that he's going to be trying to run for the NATO job and the Netherlands hasn't uh, lifted its GDP spending to 2% of of defence. But nevertheless, I think it is absolutely the case that you would describe him as a friend of the good things uh, that that we have been discussing and and the good uh, values that we have so often discussed here in Monocle and I think that for at least Australia's point of view will be his legacy. He was definitely a friend of our country's during that very difficult time. Uh,
1: And on the subject of migration, Geert Wilders' party is widely back to do quite well, possibly finishing as high as second or third. It will almost certainly not be invited to participate in a governing coalition because Wilders is regarded generally with a very, very long barge pole by most of mainstream Dutch politics. But the infuriating thing about Wilders uh, and about what he stands for and about broadly similar politicians across Europe is that they're not they might be wrong about migration, but they're not wrong about what publics across Europe think of migration. There is still an extraordinarily extraordinarily resilient reluctance to it.
2: Yes, I think that's right. Um, it, so all politicians have to grapple one way or another. Uh, with public opinion that is often quite hostile towards towards migrants. There are lots of issues involved, economic issues, issues of principle, um, and so on. I'm interested to see that in some of his comments, Wilders, uh, although migration remains a major issue across across Europe, in some of his con. Uh, comments: Wilder seems to be saying, "Let's. I need to move on from this subject and develop positions on, you know, or, or bring more to the fore positions on things like housing and uh, and other issues." Uh, now, I don't know if that's uh, if that's going to follow through um, in
1: in his approach or, or not. I mean, just a final thought on this one, Latika, and a general point about characters like Wilder's. Has anyone really figured out how to? Confront or contain them, because the problem is always that if if you argue with them, it just strengthens them. Because they it, it strengthens, and this has certainly been Wilderstick. You know, he, he's the one saying people what really think he what people really think. He's standing up to the big bad establishment, or. Uh, you try to appropriate his own policies and you become tougher on migration yourself, uh, in which case quite a lot of your own supporters may desert you and you've ended up giving him what he wanted anyway.
0: Well, I think the ultimate example of this is Trump. You know, you you kind of meet them in their own playground and they will always defeat you. So it is a really tricky balance for mainstream politicians or certainly politicians who would like to keep this debate more centred. I would certainly say from Australia's point of view, um, or, or as a test case, migration was always a very strong theme in elections, but it wasn't the determining theme. Mm. It usually spoke to broader issues about competence, governance, control. And even though uh, irregular migration movements in Australia has, I think, been a really diabolical policy for, for parties to deal with for about a decade, it never actually was the sole factor in an election and every good pollster will tell you that so i do think there is a hard limit to how much an A sole anti-migration platform can get you. And on your comment there about Vilders trying to kind of broaden out his platform, I think that is is going to that. And you've seen a lot of that in Australia too. One Nation, which was an anti-migration party, has started to talk about a lot of other issues um, trying to broaden out who it can appeal to. Still, of course, within the fringes though.
1: Well, finally on today's show, UK Prime Minister teetering perilously between merely embattled and actually beleaguered is still searching for that big wheeze which might somehow win him the increasingly looming UK general election. Though a recent election elsewhere may yet furnish him with a war over the Falklands, it would be unwise to bank on Argentina's combustible president-elect one way or the other. Sunak is therefore thinking of cutting, in tomorrow's autumn statement, inheritance tax. Um... Andrew, this does seem quite a baffling thing to lead on, on the maths of it. Almost nobody pays it. Um, To be clear, in this country it is a tax of of 40%, which is a decent whack, but on estates over £325,000, give or take some allowances for residential property, fewer than 4% of estates pay any inheritance tax whatsoever. What is the sense in going big on this? Um,
2: I think the issue is that while 4% actually pay this tax some very much larger percent worry about it. Mm. So um, the prime minister's moves tomorrow... Are are these the people hoping to inherit those 4% of Estates? (laughs) It could well be. (laughs) Uh, I I think the prime minister's sort of move is to try and find something that's going to bring middle-class voters back to a beleaguered Tory party. So announcing a reduction in inheritance tax might do that. And I think there's a bit of a sort of comparison with what we've just been talking about migration tax issues and migration issues are very very complicated um, and dealing with them require it has to be quite nuanced but if you like populist politicians or most politicians like reducing it to simple um, gestures and symbolic moves and it feel i think the thinking is it feels good for a Tory prime minister to say, and I'm bringing down a tax, even though it doesn't bring in very much money.
1: That's... It's a stance they want, to, they want to occupy. And and also, Latika, it's it's an easy one to rile people up about. You can call it a death tax. You can point out the... You can characterise this as the unfairness of saying, look, everything that these people are leaving to their families, they've already paid tax on once. Is, is that... I mean... Is that a makeable case, do you think? Yes,
0: very much so. I don't think anyone thinks inheritance tax is a smart or ideal tax to impose – But I also don't think anyone in this fiscal environment that we're in and the state that this government is in would say that this is a high priority issue either. And I think we'll know tomorrow when we see what they come with, just how serious this government thinks its chances of clinging on for another term really are or not. Because if we see them throwing bones to all sorts of odd uh, interest groups or particular sorts of voters, we all know that they are really on their last days and, and Labor's probably measuring up the curtains already. <clears throat>
1: uh, we did want to throw this open to you both to play you know, dictator for a few minutes uh, and ask you each what taxes you would like either imposed or abolished. I, I have an idea for a tax which I genuinely think would win an election, possibly even for the current Conservative Party. And I'm serious about this because I I am. I don't even know where you would start guessing the amount of time that gets wasted in this country every year by people waiting on hold for some or other corporation or utility to bother answering their phone call. I think you can be reasonable out th- about this. You can give them five minutes to pick the phone up, and then you start taxing these companies by the minute for every every minute they keep a citizen on hold. That's that's my election winning idea. Anybody can have it. Andrew, what would you impose or abolish? Um, I'm not sure if this is the correct
2: answer, um, but I read some time back that the UK pension system is summarized in something like 1,500 pages, (laughs) and that the New Zealand pension system is summarized in about 25 A4 pages. So um, I would look for a tax or an absence of tax that um, is biased in favor of simplification
1: uh, and reduction in bureaucracy. Um, Latika, I'm expecting you to have fixed ideas about this one way or the other. I have three. Go on.
0: Okay. First, I would uh, whack the biggest tax ever on trans fats because it's a poison that does nobody any good. And I know that's terribly nanny state of me. I'm sorry, but I do really strongly believe that. Uh, Second thing I would do is tax airports that do not bring your baggage out in time.
1: Oh, yeah. And if your luggage... I'm co-signing that one.
0: Thank you. If your (laughs) luggage is taking longer than the flight itself to come out, you should get your flight refunded, in my humble opinion. I I have
1: literally made this suggestion in an email to Qantas.
0: Okay, I'm glad. How how was that received?
1: Not well. Yes, I imagine.
0: (laughs) Third thing I would do is not so much impose or abolish a tax, but for the love of God, when you travel the United States, could you just get a clear answer of how much you're going to pay on anything? I can't stand it when you go and you know go to the the um the, the till and it's a well it's an extra sales tax here, it's a state tax there, and you go what? Where did all these taxes come from? I just want to know what I'm expected to pay.
1: I remember being startled by that the first time I went <laughs> to the US as well. Can, can I rush in one Please. additional tax? <laughs> Please. I
2: knew any, this would our, happen.
0: Our big, our big taxing.
2: <laughs> any, any company that on the telephone says your call is important to us should have
1: an immediate surtax
2: slapped on them.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, No, I, I think they should be arrested. Uh, actually, okay, this is
0: escalating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, also, while I'm on food delivery companies. £500 a go for every time one of their riders runs a red light.
0: Oh, OK. That was unexpected. Yeah, I,
1: I think, honestly, you could raise enough to pay to solve all London's problems in a week.
0: OK, I'm kind of on the side of the gig economy, so I, I would not co-sign that one. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, well, <laughs> you can't please everybody. Um, that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Latika Burke and Andrew Thompson, also to Ben Kelly. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.